Welcome back to Joker Men Podcast. I'm Evan, and I'm joined always, always by Ian. Yes, yes, Evan is, and yes, I, I am Ian. You know, it's like we are, uh, you know, we, we are friends, right? We're, you and I are friends, and we're getting together, and we're doing something that's just kind of a passion project. I see where this is going. <laughs> Um, today we're talking about the traveling Wilburys, um, and, uh, it's, it's a really the work of several lifetimes. It's, a, a coming together of so many disparate threads, so many musical journeys, five of them. Um, one of them, which ended, uh, with the Wilburys. It's true. It's a hugely ambitious crossover event, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, the the <laughs> like the Avengers, like in, in the Avengers Infinity War uh, film. But in in this case, um, it's it's better than that to me. <laughs> I would, no matter what conclusion we come to. I I can confidently say I'd I prefer the Traveling Wilburys to the Marvel films that come out. I uh yeah, I'll 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 co-sign you on that one. Which um if if each of the Wilburys if each of the Wilbury brothers, excuse me, since they are all <laughs> brothers with their own uh names, if if the Wilbury brothers were uh, uh, Avengers characters which which Wilbury would be which Avengers character? Uh, okay, Jeff Lynn would be Iron Man or Tony Stark, I think. Okay, because no, 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 no. wouldn't wouldn't George be Iron Man? Because isn't Iron Man the guy that like brought them all together? Like, uh, yes, okay, yes. So, so I guess George would be Iron Man. But if we were really just trying to be like more true to their their characters, I mean, I guess that's true. Um, I think that George it feels more to me like uh, George is like Bruce Banner, the Hulk. Um, you know, the scientist <laughs> sort of like he's kind of a quiet, shy mm. guy, but he it, within him there's you know like a raging fire. Sure. Um, so that's George. Jeff Lynn okay. is, you know, like the wizard of like the technical studio prowess, you know, this Jeff Lynn of Electric Light Orchestra, you know, an impeccable pop music ear, mm-hmm. extremely innovative in the studio, all right, of the yeah, futuristic sort of like the- imagery of the bright uh, UFOs that look like jukeboxes. Right, he's kind of like the technical genius. So, so yeah, I see, I see him being the the Iron Man of the group. So then, what else do we have left? I, I would guess. I, I think that Thor um, is uh, Roy Orbison because okay. he's like the literally a god uh, among mortals. Um, right, his voice is so powerful that it's like Thor's <laughs> hammer; it just comes right. in and st- <laughs> strikes the ground. Yes. <laughs> and uh, everybody is in awe of him, and he he sort of is gracing them all with his presence. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Petty clearly Captain America. Yeah, yeah, it, of, just sort of, of the, course the 
Yeah, the good-looking all-American boy everyone loves. <laughs> and um, that leaves Bob Dylan. <laughs> well, uh, I guess Bob Dylan would be. I mean, it's the easy answer is is Doctor Strange. I guess the um, is that because he's Jewish? Ju- what you mean? Because he's a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, what would Bob be? I was going to, I was more thinking of the strange aspect that he's kind of (laughs) on like another plane that he's sort of like mysterious, mercurial. I see. He's either Dr. Strange or, um, Howard the duck. (laughs) Let's go with that one. I like that. Anyway, I'm, I don't know if you can tell, I, I am excited because this is a really, uh, f- I feel like we really have kind of paid our dues at this point. We've really, in the last, what, half dozen records, like, kind of I've, been- I feel, I was thinking about this earlier today, I feel like we've been trapped in this fucking, like, purgatory of the mid to late 80s for, like, three months at this point, and I know that isn't the case, but I just, like- like every fucking week there's another bullshit mid late eighties project that we need to encounter before we actually get back to stuff. That's yeah. <laughs> any, anywhere close to even good. And, uh, I guess, I guess that'll be maybe the topic of this episode is whether, whether the Wilburys starts marks the, you know, the, the beginning of the ascent out of the deep dark Valley that we've been in for the last couple of weeks or whether it's, it's yet another uh, continuation of, the lowest of the low. Yeah, are we cursed to dwell in in the depths of the groove, um, or are we right. going to ascend to? Um, are we going to knock once more upon heaven's door? Right, right. Um, without giving anything away, I believe that it's undeniable that the traveling Wilburys moment is a special moment. And a unique moment. Yes. <laughs> yes, we can, we can absolutely agree on and, that. And I think it does mark a change of, of some kind, okay. undeniably. Yes. Yeah. All right. I, I think we can, we can agree on that. One programming note just to mention so that people don't get pissed at us on Instagram or wherever. Uh, we, we are aware Traveling Wilburys comes out end of 88, right. like October 88, something like that. Dylan and the Dead technically uh, was an 89 release, but Dylan and the Dead was recorded in, what was it, 86, 87, right, right when the tour was actually happening. So, so it's, we're, playing, we're, we're being a little fast and loose with the, with, the, uh, with the chronology here. I don't think anybody cares except us, which really is as, as it should be. We should be the ones who are you know, stepping in to make that mental note. I definitely right. thought about it and I lost sleep over it. Between this and the lack of Ronaldo and Clara. Yeah, so far, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> we've we've heard all of your complaints, all of you thousands upon thousands of Ronaldo and Clara heads out there, and we will get there eventually. Um but uh when when that eventually is is uh, TBD. Anyways, yeah. So Wilbury's 88, right? Uh, this is sort of occurring, I guess, concurrently with Down in the Groove, the last 
official studio record that we talked about last week. Obviously, you heard us chat about Dylan and the Dead. <laughs> saying that Bob Dylan was recording down in the groove while this was happening is like saying he wasn't in the studio cutting a record for Down in the Groove. It was just a odds and ends kind of collection. He was scraping together some some bits from his basement and cobbling them into a the semblance of a record. Right. But this, yeah, is it it is Wilbury's is is coming out at a, a relatively fallow period in Bob's discography. Uh relative at least to what has come before it. You know, we had our Christian records at the beginning of the decade and then we had the Infidels um Empire Burlesque run from eighty three to eighty five that was a little more fertile. And then we have Knocked Out Loaded, and we have Down in the Groove, and we have Dylan and the Dead, and we have Wilburys in this mid to late 80s, um, uh, like I said, sort of fallow period. We're going we're gonna to start to get, get moving back into a more productive, artistic direction, I think, with our next set of episodes. But before we get there... I have one question. What is that, Evan? What is the Traveling Wilburys? Who are they? That's a great point. Yeah. So the Traveling Wilburys is a collection of uh, five cool dudes who all lived in Los Angeles. and Who all part- lived to rock and roll. Oh, yeah. <laughs> five of the, the if, if you've been following along the last couple episodes, uh, you'll be familiar with this term, five of the, the coolest rockinest daddies that you can imagine, uh, sometimes literally uh, daddies. Um, not like in a gay way, but in like a, like fathers. Fathers. Yes. Um, yeah, it, sort of traveling over is sort of the, the apotheosis of, of dad rock. So we've got Bob Dylan, uh, the, the subject of this great podcast and his, uh, his friends and compatriots in the rock and roll recording industry, mm-hmm. uh, George Harrison of the Beatles, Jeff Lynn of ELO Electric Light Orchestra, Tom Petty. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and the great Roy Orbison of Roy Orbison. Of Roy Orbison, yeah. <laughs> of being Roy Orbison. Being Roy Orbison, indeed. So we've got, uh, we've got four-ish sort of uh, old heads at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, this is, this is 88. Um, so, so Roy, George, Bob, and Roy being Jeff the oldest. Lynn to an extent. Roy is the oldest, certainly. But Roy, Bob, George, and Jeff Lynn are all kind of past their, past their glory days. And Petty really almost is past his glory days as well. Like he's still, he's definitely the youngest most uh, relevant in this group. Most relevant, absolutely. Um, but, you know, the, the um, I guess, I don't, I don't remember when Wildflowers came out. or 94? Fever. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Petty is, is definitely in the, in the, 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 the zeitgeist at this point, but he's even he is starting to to trend down. So, um, you know, we've got a collection of of guys who are past their glory days and are just kind of uh, you know some of them are a little more lost, a little more troubled than others, but none of them are operating at the absolute heights of their artistic powers as powerful as they had been at one point throughout their careers. I'd- to talk briefly about how this came about. Uh, yes. It really, uh, like you uh, touched upon earlier when we were talking about the superhero equivalencies uh, of each of these men, it really came down to George Harrison, and it was really his fault, one could say, <laughs> or his. Uh, <laughs> it's because of him 
it's his he's he's the man to to praise or to blame for the traveling Wilburys. And he uh kind of was the center nucleus of, of what became the Wilburys, where mm. he was uh as the story goes, uh out at dinner with uh Roy Orbison and with Jeff Lynn, I believe. And he said to them, you know, I'm going to go to the studio tomorrow. I just want to come up with a tune. Do you guys want to come along? And uh, they said, yeah, that sounds good. And he, uh, George thought, you know, Bob has a studio. Actually, Bob Dylan has a recording space. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll give him, maybe we could do it there. And he calls Bob and uh, George Harrison is quoted as saying that, you know, you Bob Dylan is someone you could call and never hear from him. You, you, you don't get through for years, or he just picks up the phone, and uh, it it's all it's pure chance. And of course, fatefully, Bob picked up first try, and uh, he said, "Come on over." And uh, George Harrison had a guitar at Tom Petty's house, so then right. Tom Petty gets hitched in, and then they're all at Bob's and they're working on this song that uh, turned out to be handle with care. Apparently Mm -hmm. they're working on it and they're all just jamming and coming up with little bits and bobs of this song. Uh, This was a song that like primarily had been written and and put together by George. A George tune. And then um, Bob was like, well, what's it called? And he looks around Bob Dylan's uh, garage, and there's a box that says "Handle with Care." And he goes, "Handle with Care," and Bob goes, "Handle with Care." And that's good. And then uh, you you could say the rest is history, but it's it's not quite that simple because t- some time passed, and this this song was just kind of sitting there, and uh, George Harrison was kind of sitting on it and doting on what 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 is up with this piece of music. And uh, came to the conclusion, after much contemplation, that they ought to do a full record. Because the experience Mm. of all the guys getting together and rocking out and making this uh, good song (laughs) uh, was so fun that they decided, let's do it for nine more tracks. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that explanation, I think, speaks to the, uh, level of care and, uh, preparation that went into the formation of the Wilburys and the songs that constitute their debut album, really one of two albums, really almost one of one albums, if, if we're just considering the canonical five-member formation of the Wilburys. Right. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but, you know, it, <laughs> sort of came together on a lark and uh and and was put together on a lark uh going forward i, I th- there's this documentary that evan uh, sent to me and we we highly encourage all of our listeners to seek out just uh, plug it into youtube you know traveling wilburys documentary it's called or the, it's the true story of the traveling wilburys i think there we go true story of the traveling wilburys it's you know 28 minutes long something like that and it's now my favorite movie <laughs> highly entertaining much better than hearts of fire Um, but, uh, in that documentary, we get a bit of an explanation from some, I I forget who, not Bob, because Bob offers uh, literally zero insight. Yeah. He's (laughs) the only member who doesn't really talk at all in this documentary. 
he appears in footage, but does not offer any sort of interview or information about what's going on. Um, but some, one of the other ones mentions that, you know, the, the four of the Wilburys who aren't Bob, uh, were all just hanging around and available to record. And Bob was on tour, but he had like a, a chunk of time, right? Like a week and a half or something in May of 88 that he could, that he wasn't on tour. It was in between legs of the tour and he would be back in Los Angeles back home. And so he was available for that, that, that period of days, that nine, 10 days or whatever. And so that, that was the chunk of time when it all, all the magic happened. Uh, and it turned into just sort of a cool, a cool week and a half of cool dudes hanging out at uh someone's house not any of their houses um guy from the arrhythmics dave stewart okay um but it was uh, uh, probably in malibu or in the valley yeah i would guess probably somewhere either in it looked to me like it would have been like up in the hills sort of in west los angeles like off mulholland somewhere yeah studio city or something yeah somewhere um so all the pictures and, all these like promo shots are just of them like wearing uh wearing jeans and like bla- like big old oversized blazers and like very colorful keds or vans mm-hmm. and yeah, um, there's there is a great shot of a sort of a a hype beast fit that Bob is wearing at one point they, he's wearing like the Wilbury look which is i guess you know like mom jeans, white t-shirt or, or something like that. A big sort old, a, a, or a big old dress shirt or like, or right. blazer. And these a like, blousey kind of yeah. Shirt. And these really colorful, very, uh, un, out of character, like trainers, trainer, like not even trainers. They're just like sneakers, like classic, no. like, uh, plimsolls kind of. And, um, they're sort all, of a precursor to the Seinfeld normcore. Yeah, it's a pre uh, pre Seinfeldian. There's a there's a lot proto proto Seinfeld. Yeah, there's a lot going on here in terms of the aesthetics, um, which I'm I'm excited to talk more about. But um, the other sort of quintessentially Will Wilbur Wilburian Wilburian. <laughs> uh, yes. That's that's the that's the term the scholars use. Yeah, the uh, the other side of the vibe is that they are all in they're they're in a house that looks like Tony Soprano's house. Like they're yeah. saying like it's kind of like a like ca- lowercase p palatial mm-hmm. like pseudo suburban uh McMansion vibe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know uh, none of the, none of the listeners or probably a few of the listeners are familiar with the area of Southern California from which Evan and I hail. Uh, but it's a little, little nook, uh, the, the Conejo Valley. Uh, it's just beyond the, the quote unquote Valley that you're all probably familiar with is in Valley girl, which is the San Fernando Valley. Conejo Valley, a little further out, a uh, little more uh, provincial, I would say, but over the last uh, you know couple decades, it has really ritzed up very close to Calabasas, the Kardashian neck of the woods. Uh, but the the Conejo Valley in general, uh, these neighborhoods are, are made up of these just sort of winding roads through these uh, scrubby hills, uh, and they've all been you know the, the, there are all these subdivisions that have just been carved out of nothing over the last three four decades, and uh, and yeah, it's a bunch of stucco sort of cookie cutter houses. Uh, they're just enormous, just like sprawling, 
enormous, you know, five, six, seven bedroom houses for three to five person families. Uh, and that is, that is exactly what, what the Wilburys uh, sort of vibe is. And that is exactly the kind of house at which they, uh, they recorded this. Although, although I think that there is, I, I'd really have to track this down. I'm, I'm embarrassed that I don't know it uh, going into this recording, but like why or who lived in the Valley? That's what I want to know. I think I have to ask Rado, Jonathan Rado, because I think I remember him mentioning that the restaurant, this uh, Indian restaurant right next, right by his house around the corner mm-hmm. from Rado's house mm-hmm. is um, one that they, that George Harrison and the guys used to go to sometimes. Um, during the Wilbury session. Yeah. I would imagine during that era. And then in the documentary, in the true story of the Wilburys, there is a shot that I just sent to you in <laughs> where you see them recording the song last night. And then it, there's a quick shot of uh, Mel's diner, uh, Mel's drive-in uh, at dusk on Ventura Boulevard. Um, Beautiful sight. I can't help but be moved by that. Have sight. you ever have you ever been to Mel's? Uh, yes, I have. No, I, I think I went. I, I haven't been to the Valley one, but I I did go to the one on Highland, uh, just south of Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, right. I think just literally once at like one or two in the morning after a movie at the Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to say I was with Ori and some sort of chili based dish was involved. Sounds right. It wasn't very good. <laughs> you know, you go there cause it's open and it greets you with open arms and just chili or chili or wings yeah. or and, whatever. BLT. And Mel's Mel's really is sort of the restaurant equivalent of the Wilburys. The, the, of well, of the Wilburys and of the Rock and Daddy aesthetic. Yeah, that's what you know. You, I mean, one in the same. It's right. like the if we could characterize the Wilburys energy, I I do I think that you're totally right, and that you're you're leading me on to the train of thought here, which is that it's like if if the nineteen it's the nineteen fifties imagined from the late nineteen eighties. Right. It's very much of a piece with Back to the Future, um, um, which is this, yeah, sort of like 30 years nostalgia hindsight sort of thing where you're transpo or Dirty Dancing, for instance, where you're transposing the 50s ephemera that you were, that you grew up with as a child. And now you're a, you know, 30, 35, 40 year old uh, boomer making big power plays in the entertainment industry. And this is, you're, you're just kind of sexing it up and gussying it up. And uh, and and reproducing it for a new generation. The the real uh, trump card, pardon the expression, the ace in the hole uh, that they had, which I, I believe they even Tom Petty even literally uses that expression, or George um, in the doc. Uh, but it's true is that they literally had Roy Orbison in their group, and they were pinching true. each other, like, oh my god, I can't believe we actually have Roy, and I can't help but think that the reason why this not only worked for them creatively and seemed to be really easy and fun for them, but also commercially was such a hit was because that urge to revisit the 50s um, was perfectly crystallized and uh, sold, really, by having Roy Orbison himself who, while he's, I mean, really came into his own in the 60s, in the early 60s, 
to mid 60s. He's still, I think, very much considered at this point of a piece with an earlier era and a a more um, a, a sort of essential part of the rock and roll history that this right. record is trying to dredge up. Right, right. Yeah, Roy Orbison was was definitely sort of the um, uh, he was he was a genuine article, um, you know, uh, like a real living uh, uh, remnant of this this like really pre Bob pre George era. Um, you know, Lynn and, and Petty obviously come a little bit later, but but Bob and George as part of the Beatles are are the ones who sort of transition definitively from the Elvis, Buddy Holly, Roy Orbison era of like pop singers. Uh, recording singles written by professional songwriters uh, into the you know sort of the singer songwriter or not singer songwriter but you know the the, the like artistic uh, element of of rock and roll where the singer is the songwriter and you are you're doing it all kind of together and there's this this perceived new um, element of authenticity that's been added to it um, um, and, uh, and it's not a purely commercial transaction, whether or not th- that's actually true, obviously, you know, that's a- another conversation. It's a spiritual um, transaction. Right. Um, you're making a deal with the devil when you <laughs> <laughs> purchase the rock and roll artist's music. You're not, you're not just a, an innocent who's exactly. um, buying something. You right. are, are making a blood pact with you. You are voting with your dollar. Right. And, uh, in this case, your dollar goes a long way because you are getting not one, not two, not three or four, but five different artists per dollar. All, all rolled into one. The, the one last thing with Roy, though, I just wanted to mention is it, because, because he comes from this pre, uh, you know, we can call it pre-modern period of pop recording, rock recording, whatever you want to say. Um, he, he doesn't have the same sort of baggage associated with him. I think that an artist like Bob or George, uh, at this moment did where, uh, you know, these, these were the guys who were again, recording the songs and also writing them themselves. And so as that artistic flame starts to dim over time and you get records, uh, like, um, you know, <laughs> every, every record that, that George put out post, uh, living in the material world. Or, uh, you know, any of Bob's cloud uh, nine. Well, cloud nine was kind of his like big, uh, commercial, like return to favor. And that had happened right before the Wilburys. Um, but, um, you know, um, I guess I'm, I'm not much of a George scholar, but I know that things didn't go, uh, super smoothly for him, just like they didn't go super smoothly for Bob, um, post mid seventies. Um, so, so Roy doesn't have this same sort of negative association uh, or, or like his name isn't tarnished in the same way that like his his songwriting capabilities have failed him, and he's turned into this sort of like shitty shell of himself at this point because he was never a songwriter in the first place. He was just he was just a singer. He was just there to deliver the songs, and that's not to say that he was a lesser sort of artist uh, by any means. Um, his voice alone, I think, is one of the most affecting kind of elements of of pop music recording in the entire history his presence i think is like a balm it cle- it's like it vicariously cleansed all the other members of the group in a way yeah, there's there's like a purity to his right. presence or something he he isn't tarnished by by years or even decades at this point of just like you know shitty records and shitty songs 
Uh, he's just, he's still Roy Orbison. He still sounds like Roy Orbison. Yeah. More importantly. Yeah. Um, and so you can just sort of bring him in almost as a hired gun um, or, you know, a session player. And, and, and you're getting nearly everything you were getting out of him in 1962 with crying or something. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's really a, it's magic as uh, George Harrison put it's it. It's magic. He said Absolutely. that the, the only, the way that this group came about, it could not have been something that was planned on it, it premeditated. It couldn't have happened if there was somebody, some record executive who had some crazy idea, let's get all five of these guys together. It just wouldn't have worked. But because right. of the the winds of change, George says, like, maybe there was a full moon that night, something like that. It just came about. And uh, so w- w- we should start talking about the record. I guess we should get into the album at some point, shouldn't we? It begins with side A, track one, Handle With Care, um, a song we've already sort of touched on. But here we we're going to touch all over it right real really feel it up but we're going to handle it with care <laughs> but carefully handle with care irresistible five stars <laughs> <laughs> two thumbs up it's a pretty good song no yeah. it's pretty good yeah uh, this is definitely a so so. I mean, one thing we ne- we need to establish right off the bat, right, is um, this is sort of a supergroup record, right? We've got our five uh, recording artists, our five Wilbury brothers, which uh, we're gonna have to pull up those. We're gonna have to pull up those Wilbury names at some point. I don't have them off the top of my head. I just remember that Bob is Lucky Wilbury at this point. Bob is Lucky Wilbury. Um, the their names are Charlie T. Jr. That's Tom Petty. Otis, which is Jeff Lynn, Lucky, of course, Bob, Nelson, and of course, Lefty. Yes. Nelson uh, yeah. being George and Lefty is uh, Roy. Is Roy. Yeah. And, and you've also got uh, Jim Keltner on drums, uh, who's, who is referred to as one of the Sideburys. Yeah. There's a couple uh, others. I think one is, which one is Searle Wilbury? You mean Sideburry? I have, there was this thing that was released, which apparently is very rare, almost impossible to find, this collection of Traveling Wilbury's commemorative guitar picks. And I'm looking at it right now. And uh, Such a fucking bullshit, like merch limited edition, boomer nonsense shit. <laughs> you got Otis Wilbury, Charlie T, Lucky, Lefty, and then Biff Wilbury and Betty Wilbury. And I, I seem cool. to recall the mention of somewhere of a Searle Wilbury, but I, I don't know. <laughs> also, I guess but we should touch on just briefly the the visual aesthetic, uh, which is uh, so interesting to me. Um, it's like a very 1980s shopping mall looking logo. There's like, it looks like kind of like the Muppets. Like it might be advertising a Muppets movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like very grand and cartoonish, like very shiny lettering. There's a version that has like a big sort of Western font and like an eagle's wing and the traveling Wilburys kind of like wobbly, like a, a scroll above it. Um, it's it's very branded. Yes, it, it's, 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 it's that's maybe something I love 
most about the Wilburys is that it's something so strange, but it's so confident in its branding and it's so <laughs> confidently marketed, like made to be marketed. And um, the fact that it never reached its full potential in the, in, in, I mean, it was meant there were going to be movies. They were really going to lean hard into this. It's just, we're left with just this interesting, ready to go uh, commercial pro- property. Which, right. Which, yeah, it's sort of a franchise, like a like a franchise movie or something, or, or uh, that that never got off the ground, um, or or that did get off the ground and then just failed to failed to continue. Well, it really just be, it it was sort of an impossible dream, wasn't it? Right. The impossible, the traveling Wilbur is the impossible dream. It is, you know, I mean, it's, it's a more just like a, from a businessman's standpoint, a simply a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I mean, not really because it was so successful, but the reality was that not, none of these men were going to quit their other musical endeavors to be full-time Wilburys. Uh, anyway, I I digress big time. We should just finish talking about Handle with Care. Yeah, I don't think we even started talking about Handle with Care. Uh, the, the the note that I wanted to mention there before we got off onto our digression is just that uh, this is a super group, right? We've got our five uh, members, uh, each of whom I, I believe share songwriting credits on all of the tracks. Um, but that said, each of these songs is sort of clearly the product of one or two Wilburys primarily. Um, and, uh, and you know, that, that combination or the, or the specific Wilbury or Wilburys is most responsible for each of these songs will, will change, um, around. Um, but this first track is, is very much like we already talked about at the beginning with sort of the, um, you know, the, the Wilburys origin story. Uh, this is Wilburys um, dark origins. <laughs> This is very much a George song. Um, so, so Bob does appear on it. Everybody's got somebody to lean on. Put your body next to mine and dream on. Everybody got, got somebody, somebody to lean on. on. Uh, yeah, that's, that's about the Put your the- body next, next to mine, mine. <laughs> and dream on. Kind of the only place that Bob is appearing on this track. I, I just want to sing sing along to it. I, I really think that it's a song that you can't hate. Who could hate this? Yeah, no, it's it's a lot. I think this is a very fun song. This like this song, side one, track one, right? Uh, definitely proves right off the bat the Wilburys is a viable kind of concept. Um, the guitar line almost sounds like a real estate guitar line to me. Um, uh, <laughs> um, it just sort of like smooth and and quicksilvery. It's a very glossy, simple kind of song. Um, George takes the lead vocal here, and it's about handling. Handling someone with care, handling the lead singer with care. What I love about the lyrics to this song and why it's a perfect thesis statement uh, opening song for this, for the Wilburys, is that it's a song about being an aging rock star and asking your sweetie baby to go (laughs) easy on you because you've been 
tossed around. You've been treated roughly by by your fa- by fame. Yes, um, this is a song that is the sound of several men in their mid forties and fifties going, uh, "Please." <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a song that that basically. Uh, presages uh, uh, the the Twitter phenomenon of you know I, I can't be I shouldn't be alone right now. I'm a little, I'm a little guy. I'm a little soft boy. Yeah, George has definitely had some had some trouble here. Uh, you know, we've got we've got some really really difficult kind of lines right here. Uh, been stuck in airports, terrorized. terrorized. That, what I love about that that <laughs> part is that like th- there's all these lines that kind of sound like. Like ad like rap ad libs, like you know, like stuck in airports, and then they would go terrorize. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is what's the one with hypnotize? Uh, it's the very next one. Sent to meetings. Sent to meetings, and then they go hypnotize. And then overexposed, commercialized. What's your What's your favorite lyric in it? Uh, from this from this track, yeah. I, I think overexposed, commercialized commercial. is probably my my favorite because that's uh, the stupidest uh, and <laughs> I think the least. It seems true. It seems like it's from the heart. Uh, I mean, the Beatles literally invented the concept of being commercialized. But of course, group. George would be the one to say that that's a bad thing, you know? Right, 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 right. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, and uh, we also have George saying... Uh, something about like in daycare centers and night schools. Like, like this is not just a song about being famous. It's like kind of airing all of his grievances about growing right. up. And in the video, there's actually shots of them as children, children. Yeah. Except for Bob, who they show who is, a picture of him. Yeah, just, just like, like looking you know, 24. Or something. Yeah. Looking at the prime of his youth. Um, I have to wonder if he was just like, you're not using a picture of me in grade school. I'm sure, I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Um, it, Roy's lyric is also uh, pretty fun. And and this, I think, uh, or Roy's uh, contribution, whatever, uh, pretty fun. And this is going to kind of, um, I think, set up um, a recurring theme for me, at least, is is Roy's presence really being kind of the... MVP. Yeah, he's he's definitely sort of the saving grace of this record, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, he he sort of comes in out of the blue with the chorus, um, uh, or I guess Genius is calling it the pre-chorus because the Bob and Tom lines that we were poorly reciting, I guess they refer to as the chorus. Whatever. Uh, I'm so tired of being lonely. I still have some love to give. Won't you show me that you really care? I'm so tired of being lonely. I still. If there's an iconic moment from this whole record, it's that. Right. When I listen to this song, um, I realize, like, oh, I know this song. Like, I, I actually had already sort of the song has had been a part of my life, and I hadn't really thought of it. Right. As being, I didn't understand it was a Wilburys song, but that's an iconic musical passage. Yeah. It's great, and and it's like it, it's almost like from a different. It, it almost sounds like or reads like a, a lyric from a different song, where George is just kind of going through here, whining about all of this like non misfortune he's had to deal with, and then here comes Roy. He's he's lo- he's an old guy. 
he's lonely. He's still got some love to, he's an old dog, you know, and he's, he's, he's still trying to prove that he's, he's got something going on. Uh, and I think that, that really sort of, uh, is what's going on with his entire participation with the Wilburys in general. He's still got something to offer and he's been sidelined over these last years and decades. And this is sort of his triumphant return to the spotlight. There are later Roy Orbison performances and records that f- find him sort of struggling to sound contemporary. It's a, you know, sort of an Elvis type of scenario where sometimes it works and sometimes it sounds like he's mismatched with the the production. It's it's he's from another age and right. it doesn't the seventies don't suit him particularly well sonically. Right. But which is the, why I think the the, the Wilburys, Wilburys works because these guys know that and they love his prime the the real prime of his work mm-hmm. where they I think have an ear for like oh he would be he would be good here especially Jeff I guess because he was really the lead producer right with George the uh, studio wizard they are writing all together yes but with with an eye open to to really showcase um, Roy in a flattering light. To remind you why Roy is great. Sure, remind you why he's great. And and the reason you are reminded of that is because this is sort of the apotheosis of the, of the cool rock and daddy movement, uh, which, which is not trying to sort of advance these artists uh, forward uh, by any means. Like you said, the 70s were not necessarily kind to Roy. You know, we're not we're not trying to take someone from 15 years ago and bring them up to date. We're taking someone from at this point, you know, like 25 years ago, really, and just sort of representing them as they were initially presented 25 years ago, but to a new audience, mm-hmm. um, and in a you know sort of a, a sexed up, gussied up kind of way. You know, there's there's no effort to advance them or bring them up to date the way that there was with Bob with Empire Burlesque, for instance. But it, it's just sort of you know uh, represented. And um, imitated with the cutting edge technology of, you know, at this at this point, 1988, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel or teach an old dog new tricks. We're letting the old dog present their old tricks, but just in higher definition than they ever did before. Well, speaking of old dog, uh, I think that that transitions perfectly into the next song (sighs) where Bob Dylan is horny and gross. (laughs) The The first Bob showcase on this record. This next song, which is called Dirty World, um, was kind of written by the way of George throwing a bunch of magazines to people. Mm -hmm. Like, had a bunch of car magazines, and they were all just like reading these phrases like five speed gearbox and stuff like that. And it it just, uh, using the magic of free association, um, they wrote Mm -hmm. this song about, um, where, where Bob Dylan <laughs> talks about parking, he talks anal sex. Oh, baby, the pleasure be all mine. If you let me drive your pickup truck and park it where the sun don't shine. <laughs> it's sort of a confusing analogy <laughs> uh, that that um, doesn't really <laughs> really lead you from beginning to end here, but. But uh, we're, we're either talking about women or we're talking about cars or we're talking about women as cars or cars as women. Doesn't He treats objects like women. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it 
it doesn't really hold from beginning to end with each and every line. Um, but you know, that, that doesn't really matter. We're, we're just here for the experience. Right. And, uh, and like you said, this is absolutely the return of, uh, of horny Bob, horny Bob, who, Hong Kong, who yeah. we haven't seen for, I guess, how long has it been at this point since, I mean, uh, like new, ages. new pony, ages. right. I guess was like the last really big kind of horny song. Yeah. Uh, horny in a very, in the, in the horse way, you know, yeah. a, a, where the whole woman's a horse and here the woman is associated with the car. With the car. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not sure what Freud would make of this, uh, whether he would say that there's a homosexual, uh, aspect to it because of the car being more the, the, the phallus. Yeah. The, <laughs> it doesn't really hold up the, the, uh, the metaphor all the way through. Well, I think that it he's he's making a it's a joke there. It? It's wordplay. Pick up if you let me drive your pickup truck. First thought, and park it where the sun don't shine. Well, and where's the sun? Um, where where is if that? If you let me, if you let me drive, if you let me take control of your vehicle, and then um, fuck you in the. <laughs> 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 yeah um you it's, know. it is a fun song um it's a you know, yeah because by the end of it it's just like it stops being that it, it it becomes this like sort of weird very whimsical um group song where they're just throwing out these words like these uh card terms there's a part where they just say he loves your red bell pepper. <laughs> yeah. He loves your service charge. Yeah, the, the end little uh, uh, riff It's there. like a roundabout right. there. And, and of course, in the documentary, there's a really, just a, a great moment when you see them all. Uh, it's like a static shot of them just standing in the studio uh, all around the mic recording this. And... Uh, for whatever reason, they, whatever way they went, apparently it would always end up with Roy Orbison singing this line that is, uh, he loves your, and then Roy going trembling will <laughs> And he says trembling and it's not even traveling. It doesn't make any sense. Trembling will well, Trembling will Yeah. And wh- wherever way they went, he was the one who ended up singing trembling Wilbury and they all crack up and you feel like you're you're there and uh, these are your best friends and you and you're all having fun right it's the same way that you feel when you know you listen to our podcast when yeah. you listen to our podcast or when you watch the sopranos and you see tony and christopher and and silvio and polly all calling each other uh gay or whatever it's it's just hanging out with your hanging out with your boys it's a good time i think it's a lovely fun song <laughs> that's also pretty gross and um with the first song we sort of been introduced to the wilburys idea and then in this song we're being introduced to the wilburys view of some of the more nuanced aspects of life sexuality and cars <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that is a uh, sort of a theme that's going to run through this album is uh, motorized vehicles of some sort. 
uh, you know, it, which which I think fits in very much to the traveling. Uh, uh, These well, people, they're traveling. They are traveling, and they are also just you know forty something, uh, approaching fifty something year old uh, dads with big houses and probably uh, and nice alimony cars. payments. Um, yeah, lo- lots of cars. Uh, you know, we we get some 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 boats uh, and and even some trains uh, at certain points. Um, and planes, even, trains, and planes, trains, and automobiles. Automobiles, really. yeah, uh, all 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 manner of motorized vehicle. Speaking of planes, trains, and automobiles, we will have to get into this when we talk about Wilbury's Volume Three, which is actually the second Wilbury's record, second and final. But John Candy is in a video, stars in a video, uh, I believe of one of those songs, uh, John Candy, who was of course in planes, trains and automobiles who, so traveling, you know, modes of travel, mm. John Candy. It's all, it's all coming together. It's all, it's all happening folks. The next <laughs> song is called rattled. Um, this one is a really, uh, we talk about throwback music. Like this, this song is absolutely a classic cool rock and daddy song. Yeah. This is maybe the most, Cool rockin' the, the the most rockin', most cool, most daddy of all of the cool rockin' daddy songs on this record. You know, not not a whole lot going on here, as far as I can tell. Um, not not much that I'm interested in. I I agree that it's not the most compelling song, but I think it's done to a T. You know, it it exactly like a like a big old cartoon T bone steak. This is just a. It's it's like that in song form. It's it's like you're just going to the diner and you're getting your steak and eggs. Well, and well. and they give you this song, and you put a coin in the jukebox and it plays a song like "Rattled." It is it is what it is, and if it's what you're looking for, you're going to be happy. And if it isn't what you're looking for, you're going to be ready to move along to the next one. Uh, I, I would like to note uh, bait the word "baby." Uh, appears 26 times in this song. Um, (laughs) and and there's maybe only, you know, about 80 words in the entire thing, maybe even less than that. Uh, so, uh, a lot of, a lot of baby talking here. Oh, baby, baby, baby. Won't you save one night for me? Baby, baby, baby. Is there something wrong with you? Oh, baby, baby, baby. This is out of my control. It looks like nothing's wrong, but deep down in my soul, I'm rattled, twisted shaken not a whole lot of uh deep insight into the human condition on this one. Oh fuck you <laughs> of course not <laughs> i don't i don't i i honestly don't hear bob on this like at all even even in the background no, i, I don't think he's really present here yeah and the next song i don't i don't know if i recall bob being such a big part of it i think of it more as a petty tr- number uh, is uh, last night. Last night. Yeah, this is a cover of a song released by The Strokes uh, in 2001. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Although, isn't isn't that funny? Wasn't the song last night subject of a lawsuit from Tom Petty because of the uh, having like the American Girl uh, drum beat? We'll take a look and see what's going on here. Uh, it is last night. Yeah, so last night was that song was was the subject of a Tom Petty lawsuit. So, um, anyway, 
That's funny. Um, <laughs> Tom Petty sings this song, and uh, it's a song that is. If you want to talk about songs that are working with, like maybe how's a how's a nice way to put it? Like a couple pawns short of a chess set, a couple fries short of a meal. Um, it was a stupid song, um, dumb sounding song. Um, but I think that if you are four songs into the Traveling Wilburys record, you have no excuse and you have to just, uh, keep listening and get on that level, you know, just keep traveling along, keep traveling along. I I would like to note this song, uh, sort of is, this may be my favorite moment from the Wilburys documentary is when they are all, you know, our, our five Wilbury brothers are sitting around the, you know, this, this cavernous kitchen, um, with, uh, each of, each of whom has, uh, each of them have like a sort of a yellow legal notepad. Are they in a kitchen? I don't know. Where, I'm pretty where sure they, they were in a kitchen, um, uh, or like a dining room or something. I thought um, it was like a parlor. Maybe a part. Who knows? But I'm sorry. Whatever. Yeah, some sort of giant entertaining room in in one of these cavernous houses, uh, and and they're just in a circle, uh, just kind of riffing together and coming up with these song lyrics, literally just at the drop of a hat. And the mo the moment uh, that that is captured in the documentary, and you hear this in the very first verse here, is one of them sitting there just kind of thinking like, she was. She was, <laughs> she was long and tall, <laughs> and, and then the other. I think I think Tom Petty comes up with that, and then Bob is just like, "Oh yeah, that's that's a good one." <laughs> she was over the hill, yeah. or she was she was dressed to kill. She was over the hill, yeah. and they're all just like, "Uh huh." Yeah. Yeah. Bob is coming up with those, and and all the other ones are just like, "Oh, you're just, you're bad, Bob. It, you're <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're sin. That's sinful. You're naughty." So, so that, that, I think that just offers a bit of valuable insight into the level of, uh, effort and artistic, um, uh, intention that went into this, this recording project. While, while we're on that, that, uh, note, I, I think that, uh, this record has to be understood from the point of view w- with the knowledge that that was a very intentional choice. I feel like this record is actually pretty miraculous in a certain way because so often creative collaborations become uh disastrous emotionally and um they really can destroy the people who are in them or at least destroy their spirits really be toxic uh, situations and i think that the sort of Dr. Seuss level that these men were operating on <laughs> uh, making this album was um, very wise because I think that it was actually a way to ensure that feelings weren't hurt and that good vibes kept rolling. It is a very vibe-centric record. I think that that's really how I view this record, is that it is Five men somehow riding one good vibe to the conclusion of an entire full-length album. And um, that is no small feat. If it results in songs that uh, have lyrics like... uh, What's the one where he rhymes guitar with... um, Like, I was at the bar. She heard my guitar. Yeah, it's this one, Last Night. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
It's not Shakespeare, but um, honestly, sometimes Shakespeare isn't Shakespeare. You know, there's good, there's better Shakespeare moments than others. I'm sure. Um, sure, yeah, there, there are. There's there's ones you quote, and there's ones that just kind of you don't. don't lie. They do. They do mention uh, in the al or in the documentary several times. Um, I think George mentioned this a couple times, and they really emphasize this. That all of these songs are, they, they keep saying like they're they're so fresh or like so yes, so recently yeah. written and rec- like there wasn't a whole lot of um, uh, struggling or or haggling over the lyrics or the chord progression. No, or no, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. Is I think that this is a really a an intentional choice that was actually kind of radical on the part of uh, all the Wilburys was to just let it let it be so to speak um and uh what you did there i i I think that it actually is kind of inspiring honestly it's what like annoying improv people talk about when they're like you know talking about the yes and you know you always say yes and right right. in your stupid improv uh but (laughs) none of these guys were from they didn't know from improv so they're they're just kind of intuitively just realizing that the best way to do this project is to be really spontaneous and non-judgmental. And, uh, I think that's kind of beautiful. It is a, uh, what, what you're getting at here is really sort of, uh, you know, a phenomenon that's become more popular online these last couple of years. Uh, this is, this is, this is an album of dudes rocking. This is the dudes rock album, uh, without, without question. It is literally five dudes rocking. Uh, and that's yeah. it. And sometimes you don't need any more than that, you know. I think that they were wise to understand that you they did not need any more. Than there's that. a there's a there's a power in something so simple as dudes rocking. I love the logic that we're all great artists in our own right. So if all of us uh, are barely trying, <laughs> it'll still be better than. Anybody else? We can all give twenty percent effort, and then that adds up to a hundred percent. Yes, but they're maybe giving twenty percent effort, but also having eighty percent of heart. I do, you know, to to sort of situate this uh, with some degree of seriousness at this point in the overall arc of you know what we've been talking about with Bob these last couple episodes or last couple weeks. It's like he needed this. Right, Rob needed right. this. You know, the, the last couple albums, the studio albums at least, Empire Burlesque, uh, Knocked Out Loaded, uh, Down in the Groove, uh, these are, even back to Infidels, these are all songs that have been floating around for years, and he's cut numerous versions of them with numerous different backing bands, different producers in different studios across different years. And, and he really has sort of just struggled to, it's not coming natural to him anymore. He's he's struggling to you know just make it make it happen and it isn't it isn't as easy as it once was and uh, and and the you know you see that in the records you see that in the results and so the ability to just sort of do do this dudes rock kind of sit around in the kitchen and bang out these dumbass song lyrics over the course of nine days um, it does seem to have sort of I guess we'll you know we'll see it more in the in the weeks to come. But but after this, there is there is a sign of some sort of um, re-energizing or or um, uh, refreshing on on Bob's part, at least. 
He's cast off some demons or something. He's having fun. They're clearly all having fun. And in the documentary, the thing that I really love about it, one thing I really love is that they all seem to, there's a consensus that not only were these really fun times for these guys, but at least in that documentary, they kind of referred to it as like a highlight of their life of doing this. (laughs) It was like, a moment where they were all able to just kind of actually enjoy the fruits of their labor and their success. And I think it says a lot about all of them that instead of just like sitting back and trying to figure out some cynical way to cash in on their stardom, like a Gene Simmons, they, the, the natural thing for them to do is to make music together and, and, not have it be some sort of overwrought, self-serious thing, but they're just doing it for the love of the game. And um, I, I don't know, I, I can't help but feel like that's really nice. And uh, going back to our last episodes, when we were talking about Dylan and the Dead, an interesting thing about that whole experiment is that Dylan wanted to be a part of the Grateful Dead full-time. Mm-hmm. That was something that he wanted to do. And um, of course, it, he wasn't a great fit. But it seems like with the Wilburys, it was like kind of without even trying a great fit. It wasn't like some intellectual move where he thought, well, I, I'm this type of guy and the, the dead are like, you know, cool. So it should work. It was like, abandoning the idea of being cool and it just did work and people responded to it too right yeah this is a much more natural kind of combination uh natural sounding combination i think even as much as putting bob and jerry and company up on stage together seems like it should work in practice you know the results speak for themselves and and this does you know it does work it does work to an extent if if it's what you're looking for or it's if it's what you're maybe you're not looking for it. I don't know that any of them were looking to make this kind of music. Right. With that, I think we should move on to to the next song. Uh, if we don't have anything more to say about last night, which is just kind of a a oh, it's a light, it's a trifle, as you like to say, it's a little candy. Yes, absolutely. Well, just once again, there. Roy is sort of the the highlight of the song. There's sort of a breakdown, uh, and it gets kind of dramatic. It's it's a bit of a story song centering around a treacherous, a treacherous woman who pulls out a knife and starts to threaten you after meeting her at a bar. And and this sort of breakdown with Roy uh, is is definitely the the highlight of the song. It adds it adds like a nice little nice little bit of drama, a bit of flair, I think, to uh, the track, and always makes me smile when. When we get to his his lyric and the honking horns behind him, but yeah, the last song here on side one is another Roy, another Roy uh, gem a, a showcase for Roy. It's actually the Roy moment of the whole record because yeah. it really seems tailor made for him, and that's not alone anymore. Mm-hmm. A song which um, on on pretty much all of these songs you can hear. Jeff Lynn's influence pretty clearly. This one, you, you can definitely hear some some Jeff Lynn uh, influence just on the arrangement. Um, but the real star of the show, 
and uh, the way that the song is kind of made, um, crafted, is really to highlight Roy doing really what is a traditional, at this point, I mean, you can say a traditional pop tune, sort of in the style of like the Walker Brothers or or early Scott Walker singles. Um, I mean, really like early Roy Orbison. Um, it, it has that kind of, it's sort of floating within a, f- a few different genre uh, distinctions and um, the sort of anchoring point is a very melodramatic affecting vocal about love and loss. And you've got Roy absolutely knocking it out of the. Yeah. Yeah. No question. I mean, this, this is sort of the, the clearest example of this concept of the late eighties representing something from, you know, the, the early sixties at this point and just dressing it up and, and cutting it in a, in an early digital kind of studio. The, the lyric sounds like something that could have been on a Roy album from 1961. Uh, the music sounds like it as well. Um, or at least the mel- the melody and Roy's does. voice and, yeah, and Roy's voice. Yeah. Is it, it doesn't sound, he sounds, he sounds like he's been trapped in Amber for the last 20 years at this point. Like he's, he's just as fresh and clean and powerful as, as he's ever been. Um, and, uh, and you're, we're not, we're not reinventing the wheel here, right? You always said that I would know someday just how it feels when your love walks away. I let you down. I let you go. I lost you. How was I to know? Um, you know, it's, this is, this is bread and butter kind of stuff, but it's effective. Um, and, uh, I, and I think it really just speaks to once again, the, the, the simple, um, like, like id level power of, of Roy's presence in a song. It's this is not something you think about. There's no there's no ego element um, uh, to to even consider yourself with. You just you hear it and it just you know it, it's like um it's like when the doctor hits your knee with that little mallet and and your leg just a kicks reflex up. exactly. It's just it's just a re- except instead of hitting your knee, he's hitting your heart strings. He's hitting your heart absolutely. You hear that voice and you're just like ooh, that's that's it. That's the sound. Of the heart. Even the other Wilburys, even the other guys weren't immune to this. I mean, in the documentary, there's multiple instances where they are kind of just reminding them. They're going, wow, Roy Orbison is in our band. And there's a point where um, Tom Petty says that um, sort of the way that they would decide who was going to do what songs was that they would all kind of sing the songs. George would sort of have them do these pseudo auditions. Um, where they all kind of ran through the track and um, then he would ultimately, he and Jeff, I suppose, would decide who was really the one for the track. And uh, Tom Petty was like, it was very intimidating because Roy Orbison was going to sing this song. And so like they all acknowledge and were very aware that he had this, uh, this power and it comes through on the, in the music. Um, Yeah. Can't say enough about it. It's great. Anytime he shows up, he he steals the steals the scene, and so this this song is really, I think this is kind of the the, the single showcase piece of of his that we have on the entire record. You know, he obviously pops mm-hmm. up in other songs throughout, but this is the one that belongs to him and him alone. And and for my money, it makes it maybe the most successful song on the record. Yeah, maybe not my favorite. I I, I think it's uh up there. Yeah, yeah it's I definitely it, up there. I agree. And a good way to uh, a good way to close out side one. 
of Traveling Wilburys Volume 1 by the Traveling Wilburys. Uh, I hope you join us next time to discuss Side B of the Traveling Wilburys, uh, Volume 1 by the Traveling Wilburys. This has been Jokerman Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Jokerman Podcast on both. And and on the uh, Traveling Wilburys website, which is in in desperate need of repair. Maybe we should save the Wilburys website for the second episode because we've already been going for 80 minutes on the first side. All right. Joker, man. Joker. <laughs> I never knew I could feel I never could see